Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. Back in university, I liked almost every course I ever had to take, but I never much cared for the subject of international law. The textbook was not exactly a page-turner, but that's not the reason I disliked it. It was because I felt that international law is almost a contradiction in terms. For if you break a national law, the police and the courts will come get you, and you're likely to end up with a fine or in jail if need be. But in the international arena, there is no police, not really, and the courts have no teeth. These days, it's fashionable to declare that certain Russians will end up at the ICC in Den Haag. But does anyone in his right mind really believe that? Get out of town. International laws declare principles such as non-interference or the inviolability of borders. But when Russia invades Ukraine or America invades Iraq, there's not a lot the UN can do about that, is there? At the heart of the problem is that on a global level, there is no monopoly of violence. The US may have imagined itself the policeman of the world for a while, but it turns out that it's more like the police of El Salvador in its worst days. There are other players who can use almost equally dead violence, and in certain neighborhoods, for all intents and purposes, they are the law. Law enforcers stay clear of such places. Perhaps there's a more fitting comparison. The international stage resembles the national arena before there were, well, nation states. During the European Dark Ages, might equaled right. The best means of protecting oneself was to submit to a strong warlord and pay for the privilege. If you couldn't, you had to look to your own protection, build a wall, arm yourself. The thing is that if you are armed, you're also dangerous, and the warlords may not like that, so when you're working on that wall, that's when they will come at you. In this day and age, walls offer no safety. The best means of protection are weapons of mass destruction. Ever since these popped up, not a, singular, not a single nuclear power has come under direct attack by another state. True, there have been skirmishes on the Indian-Pakistani border, for instance. Israel has had to deal with attacks by non-state actors, such as Hamas and Hezbollah, and there have been plenty of cyber attacks and the like. But these are not all-out wars between nuclear powers. And a good thing too, for that might return the entire human civilization to ashes and dust. That's not to say that it can never happen, we're all too well aware of that these days. All it takes is one miscalculation, or a leader who can't swallow a defeat and opts for a gutter Dameron instead. But, touch wood, up to this point, nuclear arms have been a potent deterrent. Promises are clearly no substitute. When the Soviet Union fell apart, the newly independent states of Ukraine and Kazakhstan were nuclear powers. The bombs were already there, you see. They had been put there when the USSR was still intact. You might expect them to want to hold on to these mighty bargaining chips, but instead they decided to give them up. Why? Well, Russia was down and asked its former enemies for help. It didn't seem as threatening at the time, and together with Washington, uh, the Russians put pressure on the Ukrainians to hand over the bombs. Now, in all honesty, it's probably not that Ukraine could just have said, come and take them. 
For one thing, it probably lacked the means to use these weapons. The launch codes had been held by the Soviet leadership. But what mattered just as much were the promises that were being made by both Russia and America. If Ukraine handed over its weapons peacefully, both guaranteed that they would forever respect its territorial integrity. And we all know what happened, what is still happening. I imagine this as a scene from a western movie, with two cowboys in a Mexican standoff. Calmly now, just drop your gun, and I promise no one gets hurt. That's it. Good boy. Now dance for me. So once you find yourself in this situation, what's left for you to do? Find a protector. Why does Ukraine want to join NATO? For the same reason that other former Soviet states have joined it. How does that work? Well, NATO means North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Article 5 of this treaty says that an attack on one member is considered an attack on all. But a treaty is kind of a promise too, no? Except it is, it's in writing. And you know what we said about promises. Would Americans really risk a nuclear holocaust over, say, Lithuania? One might doubt that, and what's worse, so might a guy like Putin. He might decide to put that promise to the test if he were feeling really lucky. That's why Dan Carlin once suggested in his political show Common Sense that instead of making such promises, the US could gift one nuke to the Baltics. That would not be enough to use aggressively, if they did, that would be the end of them, but if they were attacked, they could obliterate a big enemy city, even the one with its leaders in it. That would not be worth it, presumably. This is precisely the sort of interesting out-of-the-box thought that I appreciate so much in Dan Carlin. It sure sounds tempting, doesn't it? Nuclear insurance for all, world peace is within reach. Or is it? There might be a few downsides to having a bunch of nuclear bombs all over the place. Besides, a country like Russia could play at that game too. I suppose Venezuela would be very happy to buy a few bombs, or Cuba. Which reminds me of a certain period in the early 60s that's not exactly known as the safest moment in history. I'm a big fan of Dan Carlin, as you can tell, but I don't always agree with him. For instance, he's also a long-time fan of the Second Amendment. And here too, his big argument is that it's a great equalizer. Little grandmas can defend themselves with, with uh, guns against big tucks, just like little Taiwan might protect itself against China if it had nukes. But, as American history shows, I think, the more weapons are around, the more accidents happen. If everyone has a gun, any fight between neighbors has the potential to turn bloody. And when it comes to a standoff between law-abiding citizens and criminals, I don't think weapons are such a big equalizer. For I bet most grannies are not so comfortable to pull the trigger on another human being. And if a burglar suspects that she may have a gun, he won't be inclined to take any chances with her. And there's another problem. Any defensive weapon can also be used to attack or to blackmail. Now that Kim Jong-un has his finger on a nuclear button, he has only to squeak and people pay attention. Everyone is outraged, but they keep coming to the table. Now if a kid is naughty, the best thing to do is to ignore it, but not if it holds a bazooka. Reversely, had the US believed that Saddam Hussein wielded weapons of mass destruction, he might still be calling the shots in Iraq. The late Muammar Gaddafi may also have regretted giving up his nuclear program. The fate of Ukraine is only the latest illustration of the fact that in the world of international politics, 
Fear is worth more than love, or that in Sedmetuant, as Caligula would have it. To those dreaming of a world without weapons of mass destruction, the worst part of the drama unfolding in Ukraine may be the message that the big fish eat the small fish, unless they are deemed poisonous. This message will be well received by other countries who contemplate making a bomb of their own. One of these countries is Iran. Not that it didn't already know that. This fish had long had to put up with sharks telling it, you don't belong in my ocean, little fish, and one of these days I'm gonna eat you. So it's perhaps not so strange that it seeks to become poisonous. But then comes the most dangerous moment. The big fish will want to eat it while they still can. That's why countries try to keep their WMD programs secret until they are in the nuclear league, and sometimes longer like Israel. The problem for Iran is that everyone has their eye on them. Let's talk a bit about how that came to be. Like almost everywhere else, the attacks of September 11th changed everything in Iran. But the Iranians could hardly have predicted the direction of change. After all, the attacks were the work of Sunni hardliners. They were masterminded by someone from the very elite of Saudi Arabia, which was Iran's great rival. Perhaps this might lead to a rethink of American foreign relations, which might be good for Iran. For good measure, both the president and the supreme leader condemned the attacks. For a change, there was no declaration of debt to America at Friday prayer. On the contrary, there were even vigils being held in honor of the victims. Yet another sign, perhaps, that the Iranian people's hatred is not so much directed at Western civilians, but rather at their governments. Alas, the to the horror of the Iranians, their outstretched hand was not accepted. On the contrary, President Bush flipped them off. Shortly after, he gave an ominous speech in which he declared that America would henceforth make no distinction between terrorists and the regimes that support them. And in this so-called axis of evil, he included Iran. As if that were not threatening enough, he then went on to invade Iraq, one of the other countries on that short list. Was Afghanistan still an understandable reaction to a terror attack? The disposal of Saddam had all the makings of a statement. There was no self-defense here. In fact, there couldn't, it couldn't even be called a preemptive strike. There was no real threat to the United States. The White House also didn't seem to care about international law or a UN mandate. Instead, the invasion was simply carried out by a coalition of the willing. America was clearly showing signs of what Noam Chomsky coined the arrogance of power. Again, if this were a spaghetti western, this was the part where someone boasts, I am the sheriff of this town and you'd all better play by my rules. And then this sheriff turns to Iran and says, I don't like you and I don't want your kind anywhere around here, got it? Wouldn't you go buy yourself a gun under those conditions? Indeed, in 2002, it came to light that Iran had been working on uranium enrichment in secret underground facilities, a bit like in a Bond movie. The strangest thing about this showdown was that Iran had been unusually cooperative in the previous period. But let's not pretend that it had been a friendly little country up to that point. There had been a reformist president, but he had been more and more restrained. His liberal reforms were going in reverse, and Iran was already hanging with a bad crowd. Still, it also cooperated with the Americans, albeit for its own reasons. For instance, 
Tehran was not unhappy about the takeover of Afghanistan. After all, they had almost gone to war themselves with the Taliban. Good thing the Yankees took care of that for them. And Saddam, well, no other villain who had, had made uh, so many Iranian martyrs. Few Iranians would waste a tear on him. On the contrary, now that this Sunni dictator was gone and elections were announced, it was only natural that Iraq's Shiite majority would take power, and that would open the door to Iranian influence. It would also lead to the rise of Islamic State, which Iran was just as eager to combat as any other country. Again, out of self-interest, these were radical Sunnis, mostly leftovers from Saddam's regime. So in Iraq too, the US and Iran found themselves on the same side. Which again makes you contemplate what might have happened if they had seriously tried to become true allies. By that time, however, that was nothing more than a pipe dream. While Bush had singled out Iran as a future target in his war on terror, he now found that it needed its help in fighting it. And Iraq and Afghanistan also made clear, if anything, that regime change is easier said than done. The fact that this now dawned on the Americans may have helped Iran survive the Bush era. His successor was a rather different species. Barack Obama had campaigned on the promise that he would end the forever wars. He had even promised to extend a hand if America's enemies would unclench their fists. Too much had happened for that to become a reality, but at least the parties were willing to talk to one another, albeit under sometimes embarrassing circumstances. For instance, when the Iranian foreign minister and the American president accidentally bumped into each other at a conference. Obama was also able to actually talk to his counterpart on the phone, apparently. The fact that this made headlines was telling in itself. So too was the fact that Iranian hardliners denounced such small talk as treason. Just how opposed some people were against any settlement became clear when Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's hawkish prime minister, went to the US to campaign against the re-election of the sitting president. The reason? Obama's appeasement of Iran. This was truly unseen, but Netanyahu's move backfired. Obama was re-elected regardless, and that emboldened him to further pursue an agreement. In 2015, he managed to strike a deal with Iran. That is to say, America, all the other permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus the EU. The agreement carried the uninspiring name Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and this reflected the uninspiring content, you might say. And to explain why, I need to tell you a few things about atomic weapons. This will be tricky, since I'm not exactly a scientist, so uh, be warned. What Iran had been doing, in secret, was enriching uranium, which means spinning it in centrifuges. The resulting product can be used to make nukes, but in lower concentrations it can also be used for peaceful energy production, and Iran said that this was the purpose. There was a similar dubiousness about its heavy water reactor. This too could be used for civilian purposes, of course, but it had plutonium as a byproduct. It's as if in the Middle Ages the hostile warlord asked why a town was building fortifications. Why, to protect against wild animals, of course. Now, the fact that Iran claimed that its intentions were peaceful, that was both a tripwire and a possible solution. The world could take Iran on its word and offer it other ways of obtaining that which it allegedly wanted. 
in return for some sanctions relief, Iran agreed to limit its enrichment of uranium to low concentrations. Plutonium production was also halted. Measures were taken to ensure this. For instance, fast-spinning centrifuges were done away with, while the plutonium-creating reactor was filled up with concrete. Iran also had to allow rigorous inspections anywhere in the country where suspicious activities were detected, but only if these suspicions would have merit. These limits to its sovereignty must have been particularly hard to swallow, but to mellow the drink, the inspectors would not come from countries which Iran regarded as enemies. This was not a perfect deal by any stretch, but we must consider the alternatives. Without a deal, Iran would soon have access to a bomb. This in itself would be upsetting enough, but the bigger problem would be that its enemies would feel the need to get one of their own in self-defense. Saudi Arabia would want nukes of its own, and perhaps its old ally Pakistan might be of service. Other countries might follow suit, and unlike America and Russia, these smaller regional forces don't have second strike capabilities, so there is a strong incentive to strike the first blow. Considering how well Middle Eastern countries get along, well, what could possibly go wrong, right? Probably it wouldn't get to that point anyway, because of the Israelis. No country would feel more threatened than the region's only nuclear power to date, Israel. It's not hard to see why, both the supreme leader and the former president have explicitly threatened it with destruction. Israel is packed on a small territory, so a nuclear strike would do maximum damage there. That's why, as I said, Netanyahu was even ready to go to the great risk of mingling in American elections against a sitting president. Perhaps you'll remember the bomb-shaped graph he put up, pointing out that Iran had nearly arrived at the red line near the fuse. Israel would not allow Iran to cross that line, was the clear implication. So that is the other alternative, attacking Iran's nuclear facilities. There have been precedents, like drone strikes, cyber attacks against centrifuges, and murder attempts on scientists. And of course, bombardments have already been aimed at other proliferating countries, like Iraq. But these would not have a lasting effect. In a place like Fordo in Iran, which is uh, buried deep under a mountain, rockets might not be able to reach. Besides, nothing would make the Iranian people flock to their leaders like that. Most Iranians stand by their country on this issue anyway, so even regime change would not solve this problem for long. After a full-out military invasion, the Iranians are unlikely to smile on any new government installed by the aggressors. The alternatives may be terrible. But the deal had some major flaws of, itself, of its own. It provoked two fears. The first came true, namely that the lifting of sanctions would increase Iran's possibilities of creating problems elsewhere. The second was that it would cheat. In that case, however, sanctions would snap right back. This is not unclenching your fists by any stretch. As Obama explained himself, you don't make this sort of deal with your friends. It was only a temporary truce. Key provisions would lapse after a decade anyway. It was hoped that after that time, more uh, better relations would have uh, popped up. It turned out rather differently, however, and that was partly because of Obama's successor. Donald Trump pointed out the obvious problems with the GCPOA, but he probably had another problem with it. 
the fact that it was his predecessor's legacy. At the hustings, he already declared that he would rip up the accord, which he called the worst deal ever. The plan of the dealmaker-in-chief, apparently, was to apply maximum pressure to force Iran back to the table. Then he could strike a better deal, or perhaps a similar one with his name on it. Nothing of the sort happened, however. See, we told you so, said Kamenei and the other hardliners. That's what happens when you make deals with the devil. It was hard for moderates to argue against that now. They understandably felt betrayed by America. And even had they wanted, they could do little else but declare that Iran would gradually abandon its own obligations under the deal. The other parties to the agreement kept trying to stop this from happening, but with mixed results. What followed was a barrage of incidents, name-calling and bluster from both sides. This was the culmination point of a decades-long sanctions campaign that started off almost the second that the Islamic Republic was born. More specifically, since the infamous hostage crisis, on which we'll comment in a later episode. In the light of current events, it's interesting to look at these sanctions and what they actually accomplished. At first, Iranian imports were banned. Over time, this turned into a near-total embargo on trade and investment. Step by step, it also came to affect non-American companies, people and banks. Some of those accused of support for Iran faced prosecution, a freezing of their assets, or even multi-billion dollars fines. Even those who just used American personnel, insurance or dollars. America's allies eventually took similar measures themselves. With this recent history in mind, it's no wonder that as soon as Donald Trump declared that he would apply maximum pressure, many companies of any nationality acted preemptively, steering clear even of transactions with Iran that were still legal. The trading bans in itself made it hard for Iran to pay its bills, but this was made worse because its overseas reserves were made unavailable, while the country was also shut out of the international banking and payment system. When applied to Russia, this was presented as the nuclear option of economic warfare. Indeed, the sanctions regime very, became very similar to the one currently deployed against Russia. In fact, in the case of Iran, it went further still, for it made no exception for oil and gas. On the contrary, everything was done to cripple these all-important sources of income. For instance, Iran lost access to foreign refineries, so it had to start refining its own oil. The resulting product was of low quality, however, and very polluting. As a result, in just a few years after 2009, air quality worsened dramatically. So there's a link between the sanctions and the extreme environmental problems in Iran. There were other unintended consequences. Unlike European firms, Chinese ones were not so afraid of American sanctions. And they had money aplenty, so they quickly stepped in to buy a lot of oil from Iran and take over investments. For instance, as French car makers stormed towards the exit, Chinese ones were able to take over a huge part of that important industry. Since the sellers were desperate, these sales must have been bargains. I bet the Chinese will be happy to repeat that trick in Russia, all the while enlarging their country's influence. But despite China's role as a spoiler, the sanctions hurt Iran incredibly hard. They managed to impoverish the general public, and a large proportion of the middle class joined the proletariat. 
Inflicting harm is not a goal in itself, however. The bigger question is, did all this yield desired results? For those who now hope that sanctions will humble Russia's president, it is sobering to consider how little equally heavy pressure achieved in Iran. The lack of foreign imports, markets and financing meant that countless businesses had to close down. So unemployment went through the roof while life became incredibly expensive. This means that more people became dependent on patronage for their survival. For many, the only way to get a hold of essential goods was through connections or bribes. Instead of weakening the establishment's grasp over the population, it rendered it stronger. The lack of prospects led to an exodus of precisely the entrepreneurial people who might someday bring about a freer society. The regime set about building a so-called resistance economy, providing for the stuff that could no longer be imported. These new industries fell under the control of insiders. The idea of sanctions is that the people would rise up against their leaders, and indeed the increasing impoverishment and inequality led to desperate protests. Quite possibly, they were even instigated by hardliners, so as to undermine the moderate president Rouhani. They turned against the regime as a whole, however, and particularly against its foreign policy, the root cause of all misery. Forget Syria, remember us, was an often heard slogan. To no avail. The fortress mentality had become so strong that anyone who objected could be branded a traitor. And so the protests were vilified until they eventually died down. The ringleaders were arrested or even killed. I'm sure that sounds depressingly familiar. Besides, while the hardliners were not exempted from popular anger, let's not think that the general public is sympathetic towards the sanctions. That was even true for people who were trying to change the regime from within. For instance, in her book Inside Iran, Medea Benjamin quotes a woman's rights activist who comments, quote, I don't know what the West has gained from all this. I only ask, why do they hate us so much? End quote. Likewise, it's doubtful whether Russians will be grateful to the West for starving their economy, especially with the news media spinning this any way they please. Speaking of which, in the case of Iran, not only are certain sites and apps uh, blocked by the regime, some of these have also withdrawn themselves for fear of sanctions. This has made it easier for the government to enforce its grip on the media. Something similar is now afoot in Russia. An important reason why the latest riots in Iran didn't achieve anything was that there was no strong opposition that people could flock to, like in previous uprisings. In this regard, it's important that the lifting of sanctions under the deal didn't yield the expected results anyway. Rouhani may have oversold them, but it was also because foreign companies hesitated to invest in a country where their competitors would be backed by the state. They were also fearful of a return of sanctions, rightly so, it turns out, and there were also important sanctions remaining, which had been imposed earlier because of things unrelated to the nuclear talks, like support for Hezbollah or the development of long-range missiles. The result was that protesters cursed the reformers and the hardliners alike, so there was no one to work with. For foreign powers were of no help either, which was perhaps wise when Obama had expressed support for the Green Movement 
he helped portray them as a foreign ploy. Donald Trump tweeted something similar, but most outsiders were careful to concentrate on blocking Iran's path toward the bomb. With limited success, for in the years before the deal, Iran, from its part, also doubled down on its efforts to enrich uranium. And yet, this was precisely the time when sanctions were tougher than ever. Ships were seized, facilities sabotaged, scientists assassinated. The most precarious moment was probably the killing of General Qasem Soleimani, key figure of the Revolutionary Guards. He was widely regarded as the second most powerful figure in our Iran. Soleimani is seen as the mastermind of Iran's widening network of regional allies, the spider in the web of its foreign policy. In person, he casually slipped across borders, unexpectedly popping up at the desk of foreign power brokers. The killing of such a high figure would not be taken lightly. Huge crowds of mourners clogged the streets. Indeed, it seems that this united many Arabians behind their leaders, perhaps even behind the revolutionary guards. In their attempts at vengeance, however, they managed to undo that. Uh, the regime, I mean. Undoubtedly, they were aiming for something like a fighter plane, but what they hit was a civilian airliner, full of innocent people. It was impossible to put a convenient um, frame or, um, or spin on this tragedy. There was an attempted cover-up, but that too was handled poorly. The already humiliated government then went on to mishandle the Covid pandemic as few other countries have. This too it tried to cover up even more farcically. The Economist reported how the deputy health minister appeared on the screen to basically say there is no cover-up, nothing to see here, while he clearly was very ill himself. Iran eventually had to swallow its pride and ask for outside help which, in my naive view, could have opened the window for creating some mutual goodwill. But sadly, this opportunity was also squandered. Now, Donald Trump had threatened holy hellfire on Iran, but he also had campaigned to pull America out of its unpopular wars in the Middle East, so he was not eager to start a new one. Nonetheless, time was ticking away as the breakout time shortened ceaselessly. Joseph Biden declared, that he intended to revive the Obama deal, albeit in a more lasting format, but it takes two to tango. And the Iranians had a good case to argue that since it was the Americans that had broken their word, it was they who should make the first concessions, unclench their fists, if you will. They demanded that America drop some of the sanctions that Trump had told out. Republicans were already wetting their knives. So once again, Iran finds itself at the brink of the abyss, and in a way, so does the rest of the world. No one wants it to fall off, but what options remain? Striking a deal that is clearly worse than the latter, that seems a hard sell on either side. But even a return to the original is not all that appealing anymore, at least not from the American standpoint. For the idea of buying time and mending fences in the meantime has clearly failed. Under the original deal, Iran could still expand its enrichment just a few years from now. Besides, the whole idea was to keep the so-called breakout time long enough to forego any surprises, up to around a year. But since the deal faltered, Iran has been working tirelessly on the nuclear project. So the breakout time will have shortened anyway. To quote Game of Thrones character Olena Tyrell, once the cow has been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up her others. 
That is the legacy of Trump's gamble. That and the fact that Iran will always keep in mind that any future administration could reniche on America's word. Indeed, Republicans have already declared that they will do just that. There is no guarantee that Biden can give that this won't happen. So what would you do if you were an Iranian negotiator? That all sounds rather depressing, doesn't it? Seems that while the world is focused on the tragedy in Ukraine, another one is about to unfold. And yet, not long ago, it seemed that a deal might be close at hand anyway. And this brings today's story full circle. For the most probable explanation is again the war in Ukraine. The US has enough problems on its hands with Russia, so it can afford a war with Iran even less than in other circumstances. Even the Republicans will have less appetite for that now. Public attention has also shifted, so the deal would attract less attention. And finally, Iranian oil and gas could make up for the soon-to-be-expected shortfalls in Europe. But I'm afraid that there is one party to the original, original deal for whom these are just so many reasons to torpedo the whole thing. If you'll recall, all permanent members of the Security Council were part of the deal, and that includes Russia. And indeed, on March 11th, just a week ago, Russia in effect torpedoed the deal, demanding, among other things, that if trade with Iran is permitted to research, this trade must be excluded from the sanctions that the West has placed on Russia. This would allow the latter to circumvent these bans through Iran. And perhaps you'd think that the other parties could easily follow through on the agreement without Russia's consent. But because of all parties the Russians are the closest to Tehran, they were key to the practical arrangements. For instance, any excess of uranium was to be shipped to Russia. These kinds of issues are not unsolvable, but it would take time, since the breakout period is almost zero by now time is running out. I have to admit that the fact that the deal suddenly seemed close until recently took me by surprise. I had thought that under the new, more hardline president, this would never happen. So this is a reminder never to make any predictions, especially on this podcast. For all I know, this deal may never materialize, or it may be signed by the time you hear this episode. I don't know. Studying history doesn't teach us to predict the future. I hope that's not a disappointment. It shouldn't be, for it's only because history does not repeat itself that there is hope for a better future. That's perhaps not as impossible as it may seem, for there are many places where people today enjoy law and order and where promises do count for something. Not that long ago, these places very much resembled the doggy dog world of international politics. What can happen at a national level might also happen on a global scale some way or another. So I think I'll keep that boring textbook on international law in my attic for the time being. It might yet be of consequence someday.